I've always written. I didn't really try to publish my work until much later, until after I had two children already. It took a while for me to think of it as like a professional vocation. and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and very excited to be here today with Lady Hubbard, who is an author and has a wonderful new book out called The Talented Ribkins. I read the book, and what really intrigued me about it is that structurally, it is a road book. It is also structured in time. It's like, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday right. type book. Also structured in as family and obviously has a dramatic arc. So you are doing these really interesting things with structure. Yeah, well, that's nice that you that you noticed and appreciated that because it was actually this the structure was was pretty hard for me to figure out and work out because it is there's a lot of layers. So I, I feel like everything wound up having more than one meaning because mm-hmm. of that. And so trying to figure a way to integrate all of the different things I wanted to do and have it be a coherent whole actually took quite a bit of work. There is so much, for example, that is about the past and history, but to have it very concretely placed in the present at the same time was was something I had to, to really work on. Right, because it doesn't feel like a historical novel. It feels very present. Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted it to have like a forward momentum right. and still try to incorporate all these other things. It's about an African-American family. They live in Florida. They're called the Ribkins. And every member of the family is born with a a unique and very unusual talent. So one can see in the dark, one can scale any wall. Johnny Ribkins, who's the main character, can make perfect maps of any landscape he drives through. And his niece, Eloise, who accompanies him on the trip, she, she describes her talent as the ability to catch anything that's thrown at her. The, the main plot is a road trip. Johnny Ribkins, he owes someone money, a gangster some money, and he's driving through Florida, digging up money that he's buried in holes in the ground at various points in his past so that he can pay off this debt that he owes. His first stop is the childhood home of his deceased half-brother. And when he gets there, he realizes he has a niece named Eloise that he didn't know existed before. And the rest of the book pretty much is the the road trip where he is trying to raise this money because all the places where he buried the money had significance in his past. Mm -hmm. It's causing him to sort of revisit a lot of unfinished business from his past, whereas Eloise has never met any of these people that they encounter. So for her, it really is about sort of discovering who she is and how she fits into her larger family that Mm -hmm. she really hasn't met before. There's so much to talk about with, with this book, which I love, but one of the things is that it is Florida. Anybody listening to this who lives in Florida will recognize at least some of the locations, if not all of them. I'd spent a lot of time when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time here because my grandparents lived in St. Petersburg. Oh. And so I I came to visit them every summer. And actually, the character Johnny Ribkins is is very much based on my grandfather and sort of the times that we spent together. He was actually a a chemistry professor at St. Pete Junior College. He was a chemistry professor as opposed to a um, burglar or anything like that. (laughs) But in, in terms of the relationship between Eloise... 
and Johnny Ripkins, it draws a lot on my own relationship with my grandfather mm -hmm. growing up. The title and a lot of the themes are drawing upon sort of my reflections on an essay by W.E.B. Du Bois called The Talented Tenth mm -hmm. that was actually written in 1903. And I, I was really interested in that because of the importance that my grandparents, my grandfather, put on education. That is the one thing no one can, can ever take from you, is what is your knowledge, what you have and what you know. So, and I think that's really powerful because that's really what that essay is about. It was arguing for the need to make a liberal arts education available to African-Americans in the South at that time, which was very controversial. And uh, I know that my grandfather struggled a great deal to get an education and to realize what I am sure to absolutely everyone around him must have been a, an extremely obscure goal of uh, getting a PhD in chemistry. So, well, I'm just thinking to be an African American in the South 60, 70, mm -hmm. 80 years ago, even to have the idea of becoming a chemistry professor. Yes. Is so interesting. It is interesting. And, and that's, again, part of what the, the book is about. All these people have these very obscure talents that don't really make a lot of sense to other people. Part of what Eloise is learning, I think, by the end of the book is just to, to it has to do with self-love and, and valuing yourself and your own vision, even if it doesn't make sense to other people. Mm -hmm. And to, mm -hmm. to sort of recognize the, the potency of your own dreams, even if someone else thinks they're crazy. That's a lot what I get from my grandfather's example, mm -hmm. because he was very, you would have had to have been a, a very willful, determined person to have endured all that he did to realize his particular goal. So a lot of the book, again, because it is very layered for me, sort of comes out of my just reflecting on all of those things. So it's, it's really interesting because you're talking about, you know, the history of race relationships and the African-American experience. And Johnny, Johnny, who's the character in your book, has a whole other story about that same experience that's rooted in the 60s with the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. Which gives it a whole another layer also. He lives a very long life. And, and he, he and his family, they do not always see eye to eye on everything. And there's a period in the, the late 60s, early 70s, where they do come together in the book. And they form a group called the Justice Committee. And the way he explains it to Eloise was that they were trying to defend the lives of civil rights workers. Mm -hmm. So he said he's trying, they were trying to see if there was some way they could help their heroes to keep going. So that's how I place that character in relationship to sort of real history. His life is very long and he tries all kinds of different strategies because he really wants to use his talent for good. But the but the character, there's always something that happens Holy that doesn't quite him. work out. He's lost sort of his faith in his ability to enact change as a result of his past, what he sees as his past failures. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of about placing the book in the present now is that I think that um, part of him learning to appreciate just the fact that he kept trying. For me, I'm, I hope that it's very hopeful in terms of the, the future, right? So he goes along and he finally meets his niece 
And by the end of the book, I, I do think he's feeling like maybe, you know, maybe there are new solutions. Because I do think there's there's something very noble about the character just just in the will to to keep going and to keep trying different things. Like if this doesn't work, I'll try something else. If this doesn't work, I'll try something else. And it's very um, sort of complicated in his mind, of course, because he makes maps. So it's, it's strange for him to be on these paths. And then they, you take them all the way to their logical conclusion. And then where are you? You're stuck somewhere. And so you have to turn around and figure out where to go from there. It's always a new starting point where you wind up. So for me, that's part of what was heroic about the character, was that he does keep trying. Even yeah, if he doesn't yeah. realize that's what he's doing, that's just who he is. And problem solving. Yes. Yeah. At one point, she says she would have thought someone who'd made maps would move in more <laughs> direct lines and he seems to zigzag around but the, for me that that is part I don't know that the character is fully aware of it but certainly for me that's part of what's very heroic about the character and you know as an author though you've forced him to zigzag around because yeah. you put his destinations in different places yeah and then you put obstacles up for him and Eloise, mm -hmm. which is fun because we're talking about some pretty complex intertwined you know Mobius strip like things but also, it's a really fun book. There's a couple of hoods who are following mm -hmm. Johnny and Eloise around and causing trouble and, you know, some great escapes or adventures. So it's it's got that kind of full speed ahead engine. It's got a great sense of humor and, and sort of zany kind of fun in it. Well, that's really nice to hear. It was one of those ones that you can't put it down and then you're really sorry mm. when it's over because the characters are so endearing and their stories are so endearing. Oh, thank you. It's like writing in a convertible in a certain mm -hmm. way, you know, top down, all that. And at the same time, there's a, a sadness and what the cost of being an American, being an African-American, being in the South, being somebody whose dreams maybe seem like they would come true and were challenged. And, you know, so there's that too. So that that's what I was saying in the beginning about structure, because mm -hmm. I, I really did want to tell a story. Do you know what the germination of the, the work was for you? It really was a lot of different things that sort of came together in my mind in a very specific way over time. One is, it's like a joke that's not a joke, but I always, the Talented Tenth does sort of sound like a superhero group. It's right, like, so it's right. It's kind of funny. It's like the Fantastic Four, the Talented Tenth. In a way, it's almost as if the, they are like the super, they're going to save the race and stuff like that. So they are like presented as like the, the superheroes that will save and lead everybody. And they mm -hmm. have all the, so that was one thing. I sort of played around with that in my mind for right. probably years. And, uh, and then I always say, because this is very true, sort of the idea of thinking about having a unique talent that, that is not understood is uh, I was very close with a woman who was an English professor at UC Berkeley and Barbara Christian. She was a big influence on me and she, she had a big garden. It was like this really strange looking potato. It was like deformed. And then she, she was talking about, she said, oh, this is a sport of nature and how all the diversity and beauty in the garden, this is what it came from. Mm -hmm. And it was, she was really just talking about appreciating qualities that might make you feel alienated or strange sometimes that they, they really did have often a, a, a really profound and deep value, mm -hmm. which is very different from like an ugly duckling story because <laughs> you're so 
to be a, a weird potato. You don't have to live your life like that. But to appreciate that there's something like sort of meaningful and profound about your existence as well. Mm -hmm. And that was very beautiful to me. Eloise meets five people, and on a certain level, there are five different strategies for coping with the world and dealing with obstacles. This is not going to stop me. I'm going to figure out a way to get around this. But they all do it completely differently, and that's a, a part of their personality. So give me an example. Well. Johnny makes maps, so he's, you know, I will find a way around right. and through. I'll figure it out. We will get through, and I will keep going. His brother scales walls, so he just climbs over. And then he, at one point, Johnny says he didn't feel like his brother really understood what walls were supposed to represent because he just climbed them. So that's it's just different coping strategies. One is the best way to sort of negotiate and navigate the world. When did you in your own personal journey realize you wanted to be a writer? I think I've always written. I didn't really try to published my work until much later, until after I had two children already. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was very personal for me, and I really, I, it's just something I've always enjoyed doing. And then I think I, at a certain point, I realized that if I wanted to actually spend so much time doing it, I needed to actually publish <laughs> Just to make it make a little bit more sense that mm -hmm. I spent so much time writing. It took a while for me to think of it as like a professional vocation. So what did you do for your vocation before you started writing? I, I have a, um, a PhD from UCLA. So I was actually teaching at Tulane when I started writing this book. I, I taught in the theater and dance department, actually, and also in uh, the Africana Studies program. African-American and Caribbean performance traditions. I taught a lot about that. And then I also taught courses on the performance of race, the public performance of identity. I did a lot on dance in particular. Uh, and, I, and I wrote short stories mostly, and I published several short stories. And I realized I wanted to write a, a novel, so I went back to school, I went to get an MFA. The, the primary reason for doing that was just sort of to take two years off so I could focus on writing and finishing the novel. So you were teaching at a university, you had a PhD, did some short stories and said, you know, I need to stop and go to school. And I, I think you went to Princeton, is that right? I went to Princeton as an undergraduate. Oh, okay. So I got my MFA from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, which is a very, it was a very good experience for me. Yeah, it's a really small program. I had actually, I had three kids with me when I went there because my youngest was four months old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing yeah. to be a mom of young kids and... and have time to write yeah no it's hard it's very hard it was it was that was a hard thing time is difficult for me so but my the the baby was very nice his name is zay and he was very sweet because you don't know what you're gonna get do you know yes. what i mean like it could have been a nightmare but he's actually a very pleasant happy baby who slept all the time it was just like he's like I don't know what he's gonna be like maybe I really won't be able to do all these things so I'm, I'm very grateful to him for being so kind and how old is he now he's almost he's six 
Yeah, and I have a daughter named Isa, who's 18, and I have a son named Joaquin, who's 13. Wow. And, and then Zay, who's six. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I believe you studied with Toni Morrison. I did. I did. And that was a, I was a big fan. And that was a huge reason why I, I was at Princeton was, was because I was such a huge fan of hers. She, she wound up being my thesis advisor. Wow. So I'm surprised sometimes by how open she was to my wild experiments I was really enamored of, of language, so I would just try these things, and then I'd be like, wow, look at the, if you write it this way, it's like this, and I'd get really into it, and she she always encouraged that, like, it was never like, that's not how things are done, or you can't, she, she really encouraged me to take a lot of risks in my writing. I would like to talk to you a little bit about your writing process. Do you, did you write a whole outline and then, or no. did you? Well, the, the first chapter of the book was actually a short story that I published, I think in 2010. And then I didn't start actually writing the novel until 2012 when I went to Wisconsin. So I was just thinking about it and doing other things. It was the characters. Then let me ask you, because you said you had to figure out the places. And I was like, well, why these places? It was actually those logistical issues mm-hmm. were probably the last things for me to, to mm-hmm. work out. Mm-hmm. Just sort of grounding it in, in actual space and time. Well, one of the things that, that really struck me, we don't know much about Johnny's father. Mm-hmm. But he, we do know he was an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can see colors that no one else can see. I, I, I'm actually I, I'm writing a, another book that that has it's his father when he was a child. Oh, so it's it's not it's weird because it's not really a prequel, but it's actually in part about Johnny's grandfather, who's mentioned in the book, the Rib King. But yeah, he becomes an, an artist, and his issue is that no one else can see the colors he's trying to create and capture, so. which could be really frustrating, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I think this has been a really lovely conversation. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.